0: Colossians 3.10, Paul says, he's speaking to the church at Colossae, in effect, he says, you, you Christians, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, the Imago Dei, that we learned about last week. Here, in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, And in all, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And I love those last three words. And be thankful. So Paul spent nine verses in Colossians 3, really eight, and he's telling them of the joy and the riches of their redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. When an unbelieving sinner is confronted with the claims of the lordship of Jesus Christ, and on whatever level they are able to comprehend that this glorious Savior gave his life as a sacrifice for their life and substituted his righteous life for their ruined lives, and in that moment, of impossible to define faith, but that person yields to the claims of Jesus, literally gives himself or herself under the Lord as in that simultaneous receiving of Jesus and releasing of self, this glorious thing called salvation comes. And so Paul spends eight verses in Colossians 3 telling them of the riches of their salvation, who they are, how they are in Christ, and he's speaking to them about their relationship with the Lord. And then he kind of begins to to morph into their own relationship with themselves, how to live as a believer. So in other words, you are secure in Jesus. And because you're secure in Jesus, start doing an inventory of yourself and start cooperating with the change process that the Holy Spirit brings in every new believer. And then by the time he gets to verse 10, which I just read you, then he immediately transitions and actually spends a lengthy time saying, and by the way, let me tell you how you're going to relate with one another so so many of us have said that our salvation is between us and God Eh, that is an illegal statement in the kingdom of God you are saved individually but your relationship with the Lord and your salvation which is not just a moment but it is a lifetime it's not just you and the Lord As a matter of fact, the Bible goes to great lengths to to, to disavow that kind of statement. That literally, that our relationship vertically is impacted by our relationships, plural, horizontally. And so when we are thinking about this issue, and I've got to keep it on topic today. When we're talking about the issue at hand of race... Billy did a great job last week saying, hey, let's, let's kind of, if we can, discipline ourselves not to talk so much about race, but let's talk about culture, because that's really what it's all about. Yes. It is the cultural issue. We are the human race with our DNA 99.5% the same as people sitting all around you. And so we are the human race, and yet the world we live in, and as I'll mention in a moment, the systems, the spiritual systems in the world seek to categorize us and divide us and bracket us and box us and move us and separate us. God never had that in his mind. So let me give you just a couple of things as we kind of get in, and there'll be some more verses that we deal with this morning. But I, I, Lord, just give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts and wills to bend. Bend us, Lord. Bend us this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. So in creation, just know this, God's design for humanity from the beginning in creation was never for you and I to live in division with each other. Never. That was not the Lord's desire. He didn't want us to be in opposition culturally with one another. He didn't want us to be feuding with one another, male to female in our gender roles. And he didn't want us to fight with each other generationally. Because that's just been going on ever since the first couple of generations existed. One generation wants to define the next generation. The younger generation wants to rebel and reject the older generation. It was never God's plan. That ultimately, you've got to realize that even in the first family, after sin became predominant through Adam and Eve, what was one of the first visible effects? Brother warring against brother under the death. And it's a picture of what's been going on and the strategy of the enemy ever since Abel and Cain. That the enemy wants to destroy the glory of God in every family, in every generation, in every culture. And so division has always been his tactic, yet unity was God's original design, starting with a relationship that one another that we have with him, then that relationship for a unified family, and then that relationship for the unified church and then even into the community. That's what God has always and is always working on. But the problem again came because sin arose. Sin in Adam's life, sin in Eve's life, sin in the first family, and sin passed down through every generation unto, yes, you, even in a generation that it's not popular to mention the word sin. I just want to tell you, sin has its imprint on every life in this room. We can be forgiven, we can be delivered, but we are not yet glorified. And so we are in the process of being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, being brought closer into intimacy with Jesus, and there is a process attached to that, and it's a process that we're called to cooperate with. So you've got God bringing us into intimacy with himself, God fostering unity among his people and specifically his children, and yet you've got the enemy resisting that. And so when sin ends up dividing across cultural lines, that's what we're talking about this morning. It's not enough for us to acknowledge it and say, yeah, that ought not be. Or, wow, I see the damage from that. Or, man, I wish they'd tone it down a little. I'm not like that. You see, this kind of division is an affront to a holy God who is the unifier. And it has to be repented of in words, in thoughts, a metanoia, a repentance, a changing of the mind. And it has to be repented of in our deeds. Those, those fruits that are meat for repentance, as the King James used to tell me. Fruit, meat for repentance. The actions worthy of our repentant hearts. Now, I, I want to go ahead and say this, and a lot of this is just kind of, I, th- I think we know it, but I want us to focus upon it. In a very intense, intentional moment, we, we need to recognize that division, again, is never from the father carnal division is always sourced ultimately sourced in Satan himself but it is often carried out just through the the bending of our flesh towards those things that are not of the Lord so some of it is human but it didn't start out as human it started out with a serpent inserting doubt and then once that got in and it became in the dna of adam and eve it's passed down unto us so we get, we have it by human heredity but we also have it by human choice you see the enemy you know what his name means right devil somebody shout what does that mean it's the accuser it's the accuser it's one who slanders a false accuser The word indicates somebody who would unjustly criticize with the purpose of hurting or maligning or condemning someone in order to sever a relationship. Scripture calls him the devil. He is the one that accuses us to God. He is the one that accuses God to us. Some of you spent last week having erroneous thoughts about God that are crippling you spiritually because you're listening to the accuser accuser, tell you lies about God. And you're hearing that more than you're hearing God exposing the lies of the enemy. And so that's what the enemy does. But here's the thing. It's not just us and God. He, He really loves it when he gets to accuse you to me and me to you. And because that's when he can actually wind that bad boy up and take a step back and we handle all his dirty work for him. Because we start thinking like him. We start speaking like him. We start acting like him. And so when we've got God again seeking... And endeavoring and working for unity, for the glory of his son, and I'm speaking particularly within the church where our great identifying mark is the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ, and the ways of Jesus Christ, all of that working to make us into a, a, an actual practical oneness for his glory. And you've got the enemy saying, I wanna, I'm not going to leave that unhindered. And so he comes in, and what he wants to do is separate us wherever he can and what's going on right now in the natural. And it's, it's not new. We've got 400 years of history of this on this continent. But we're especially seeing an uptick right now in this issue of trying to even divide believers according to our cultures, or more commonly referred, our races. Let me tell you what the enemy's, the devil's plan is. For you it is to continually accuse us to one another so that he can divide hum- humanity he wants to ultimately vilify us to one another and then he wants to cause us to sin in perpetuity against one another he wants us to be a continual source of pain against one another And so that's what we're seeing in our culture. It was 52 Sundays ago that I walked up onto this podium, and I had been in Greenville, and it was the week, the weekend of the Charlottesville uh, protest and all that came from that. And I had a completely different message, and I knew the Holy Spirit had called me to table that message and to come up and address this issue. And I had very few notes, a couple of passages of Scripture, but I knew that the wound that had been open in Charlottesville was going to fester for at least another year. And and at the end of that message, when, when the Holy Spirit just broke in upon me, my heart was ruptured, I recognized in that moment that at least in this house, no white man had ever said to people of color, I am so sorry for what people in my ancestral line did to people in your ancestral line. And I began to weep and I began to cry. cry. And then Obed Glover, who uh, is from, I believe Ghana, came up on the stage and we embraced and we wept for that moment. And it was such a glorious moment where God intended it to be such a unifying moment. And people were helped, it was awkward as can be. Some of y'all are feeling that awkwardness right now as I describe it. But it was just such a moment, but watch how the enemy works. Within a week, three white families had contacted me and said, you shouldn't have done that. Said, you're going to cause and incite a race war. Why did you do that? You've never owned a slave, Jeff. How could you say such things? And I said, let me tell you something. I didn't say it like I'm saying it now. It was a little bit more mild, but I said, I may not be guilty of ever owning a slave, But that doesn't mean that I can't be grieved that so many people were owned as slaves. And when nobody, when nobody says anything, and I'm thinking to myself, it was a holy and a healthy moment that helped people. It doesn't solve the issues, but my goodness, have we come to the place In white America, where we're so afraid to admit any wrongdoing lest they come with reparations and take our stuff. And that kind of fear overwhelming a call to normal kindness in the kingdom and weeping with those that weep. Yeah, Yeah, that's still in the Bible. So what am I saying? I'm just saying the enemy never takes a day off. He'll take a Holy Spirit ordained moment that was unscripted and just organic in what he was doing. And within within a week, he's caused it to be a point of contention. So let me tell you what not to expect from your culture. Don't expect the government to solve the racial problem. I don't care how you vote. The government's not going to be able to do it, friends. You you can't legislate love. You, you you can't educate into love. You might be able to moderate some behavior, but none of that touches the heart, and all of this is a heart issue. And so when when we're thinking about his his plans and his attacks, he's not going anywhere. He's not quitting there's only one force in existence in the entire universe that is greater than his diabolical force, and that is the force, the power, the presence, the word, the truth, the love of God through his church. It's the only way that this thing is ever remedied. And so vote however you want to vote. That's between you and the Lord. But I mean, I just say this. Thank you, Lord. I prayed for help and boldness this morning. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. If you literally think this man in the White House or the next man or woman in the White House is the answer? You are, you are delusional. You're delusional. There's no savior in politics. But there is a savior. There is a Lord. There is one who toppled the Roman Empire with his sacrifices, love, and his spirit-empowered people. By the way, there is no more Roman Empire anymore. You know why? Because the church literally dominated in love and sacrifice and truth, and the Roman Empire came to its own end. You know, history proves something to us. History proves that any group of people that consider themselves and perceive themselves to be in any way superior to other groups of people, 100 times out of 100, that group that perceives themselves as superior will abuse, mistreat, and suppress those that they deem to be inferior. And that's that's anywhere you go in the world. I, I don't need to give you a, a basic history, high school history lesson, but When any group of people lives with subjugating and suppressing others, they inevitably come to the place where they have to dehumanize them. They take away the Imago Dei. They they seek to cloak it. They seek to shame it. They seek to break it. They seek to butcher it out of the human. And we obviously, we have a history of that here in, in our nation. The ramifications of which, as much as people want to say, well, that was then... I just want to tell you, there's, there's, there's a loud echo that's still going on if you've got ears to hear. Yeah, I think, um, I'm just trying to be wise. I'm not trying to be careful. I'm just trying to be wise. I, I grew up in suburban Atlanta, and uh, I went to Parkview High School. And um, I went to school with one African-American, And um, it was an all-white school. And I remember we spent maybe half a week in history class talking about slavery. Half a week, which would have been three classes. And it was so, now that I I see with different eyes, it, it was just so sanitized. It was just facts, dates, you know, these people were involved. I mentioned a Harriet Tubman somewhere in there, you know, just to say we're diverse, I guess, over there in Whiteville. And, and, and that was it. And that, unfortunately, is the way that a lot of people were raised. And one of the biggest problems is that Satan keeps us divided because of willful ignorance I'm gonna be an equal opportunity offender, so white people just exhale. Just relax. They're like, he's talking about us. He, he the enemy wants to keep us in ignorance. He doesn't want us to communicate. He doesn't want us to talk. You know, if if I'm going to stereotype what I would say about white American, it's not everybody. It, it, but it's almost like I just picture white folks in America just saying, let's just hope, let's ride it out, let's just ride this out. Maybe it'll go away. <sighs> Is it gone? No, it's not going anywhere. White indifference fuels black outrage. When you're hurt, God help the guys running the slides, I don't know if I'll make it back. When you're hurt (laughs) and your history is that of hurt and abuse and mistreatment and rejection and denial and enslavement and torture, and that's your people's history, and you live in a culture that just wants to keep it history and not talk about the ramifications of that that are still with us. And we're deeply inflamed 45 years ago. Still inflamed. Then what happens is the enemy wants to shut down any kind of conversations about it. And we want to just kind of meander in our own little polite knots. Hello, how are you? You know, because we're not this kind of extreme, we don't think that we have any, any kind of issues with race. So the enemy just keeps us perpetually divided. And you've got this ideology that takes place in a a nation and in a culture and it minimizes an entire group of people based on their culture or their skin color and all of this ultimately, you may not like this, but it is a supremacist ideology. You don't have to own a white hood and a robe to be a person who is inundated with some toxicity from supremacist ideology. And I think, guys, and I am, I'm speaking to Caucasians here, I think we are so quick to give ourselves a free pass because we would never use the N-word. We would never burn a cross. We would never attend a Klan rally. We would never vote for David Duke or any of his, his crew. We'd never do that. So because I'm not like that, then I don't need to be a part of the conversation. Let me tell you what motivated me to get into a part of converse- the car- conversation. So Is when, in a very short season of time, and it wasn't too terribly long ago, I, I would have lunch with African-American men. And I'd just hear, we weren't even necessarily talking about race primarily in those days, but I'd hear things. I'd be like, man, he's hurt. That uh, That just came out so quickly, and it just, and I made a note, and then I'd hear it with another guy. And it, it it wasn't rage, it wasn't anger, it was a stoic communication of facts that this man had to live with since he was a boy, because he was a black boy, and then a black teenager, and a black young man, now a black professional. And I'd hear that, and I'd be like, I, I don't understand any of this. That's not been my experience. And so I began to ask questions, and the more questions I asked, the more my ignorance grew. Because what happened is I was being exposed for my passive lovelessness. It wasn't that I was a flaming racist. I was just engaged in passive lovelessness. I did not care enough to come alongside. And it was during that season where I became a student. I've got so much to grow in. But I remember this. I remember seeing all of a sudden as the Lord took some very simple elementary steps on my part to refuse to be passively loveless any longer towards African Americans, I I realized that that's when God also started exposing the sinister yet subtle plan of Satan to keep us divided by ignorance, our unwillingness to have the discussions. So if I could give you a piece of pastoral advice before I try to find where I am in this message, let me give you this. Take some initiative to have some conversations, and by the way, drop your guard it's not a debate to be won there's no winner to the debate until we come to the place of of two people one black one white and that's where the primary conflict is I know there are other racial components to this but I'm speaking in the extremes of what we're facing as a society The, the black and the white until the black person and the white person both come before the cross that's the only place where there's any victory because it's the place of death to self and life as unto Jesus. So simply put, I curse that clock. If you have to go, you've got to go. That's, we ought to just put that on the front of the stage down there. When you're ready to go, you can go. But simply put, listen, God is a holy unifier and Satan is an unholy divider and right now your life is cooperating with one more than the other. I'm either cooperating with God the holy unifier or I am by not cooperating with God intentionally I am unintentionally cooperating with Satan the unholy divider. So that's, that's just a lot of heavy stuff. It's not just meant merely for shock value. But man, I just think that we've we've got to give voice to this stuff. Let let me speak to my my brothers and sisters that are not white. There are a lot of white people that really want to be proactive and helpful and engage. But we are so afraid of saying the right thing the wrong way, punching the bruise of offense in in the African-American culture and saying, trying our best to say, it, but then we, we use the wrong lingo. And, and we, we say it the wrong way, so it further makes us look like racist. So we, we walk on eggshells all the time because we don't know the right way to say the right thing. And sometimes when we're trying to say the right thing, we use the wrong lingo, and, and it gets to where we feel like our hands are tied sometimes. And so there's got to be a non-combative approach to this kind of stuff, where you, you're not there to get point-counterpoint that's not love, that's division. That is what the enemy enemy, has been doing. But you're coming in and you're, you're loving each other enough to listen. Yes, man. We have become a culture of nonstop rhetoric and almost uh, no listening. It's just... <laughs> that's all I hear, man. I turn on the news. It's... <laughs> that's all it is. It's an unholy prayer language. That's what we're hearing. It's a, it's a... But that's, and see, and here's, here's the thing, man, this is just a mess, but I, I'm trying to help, I promise. This, unfortunately, our culture is fueling most of our thinking. We're picking up our cues, our thoughts, our presumptions from a corrupt vehicle that is bringing us unholy, out of bounds, exaggerated to the left or the right misinformation. And it's causing us to be afraid of each other, be mad at each other. So what are we going to do? I'm going to say something very simple. Simple to understand, and there is no plan B. If it's not this, just get used to this the way we are in our culture and watch it get worse. If it's not what I'm about to share with you, then there is no answer. But it is what I'm about to share with you, and there is an answer. And it depends on every single one of us. Changing our thinking, changing our mind, and bowing before the Lord of glory and say, I will align myself with you no matter what this culture is telling me to do. What am I talking about? I'm talking about it's only through the gospel that reconciliation between cultures is possible. It's only through the gospel. Let me just remind you of a couple of things. First of all, we're reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. You as an individual, if you have come to Christ, you were reconciled to God through the cross. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, famous words, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ uh, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, to the church, to the reconciled, the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors, not for the white culture, not for the black culture, not for the Latino culture, not for the Asian culture, not for the Patriots, not for the resistance, not for Antifa, not for any of that. We are ambassadors for Christ. We belong to him. We represent him. Everything else is a lesser loyalty. So we are making his appeal. He is making his appeal through us. And so Paul says, we implore you. By the way, that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm imploring you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. God the Father made God the Son to become sin. He who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus leaves the perfect culture of heaven where everything orbited around him. He was central in his pre-incarnate existence as the Son of God. And he willingly left the perfect culture of heaven where everything centered on him. And he left and he came to this culture of depravity and death and sin where everything opposes him. But why did he do that? Because he loved you. And he loved me. And he came to fulfill the, one of the, the, one he, the will of the one he loved most, which is the Father, and he came to do that he he abandoned his environment in heaven and purposely entered into our environment so that we one day might be able to leave this environment and go to that environment and so it's not just that we were reconciled unto him but we are also reconciled to one another through that same power of the cross look with me in Ephesians 2 it should be up on the screen. Paul, again, writing a very diverse group of people. Now in Christ, Jesus, you you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. He's the one who has made both of us one. Jew and Gentile is what he's referring to. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one New man in the place of the two. So making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, Jew and Gentile, I'm not gonna go long on this, but you think tensions between black and white are bad in America? Doesn't approach what the hostilities were of Jew and Gentile in the first century. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Jews wouldn't want to come near Gentiles. They wouldn't want to touch a Gentile. They would pass all the way around an area that was inhabited by Gentiles so they didn't become ceremonially or religiously defiled. And then Jesus Christ comes and the gospel begins to advance. And God is no respecter of persons. And the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles would be grafted into the eternal plan of salvation from God the Father. And so the distinctions and the separations and the barriers and the hostilities that were so prominent in the horizontal plane were abolished by the vertical beam of the cross coming down from heaven, bringing together those who were hostile. And so when God looks on his people, I know that man looks on the outward appearance. I get that. I'm not not gonna apologize for being peach. That's just the way I was made. I'm not ashamed of it, I'm not proud of it. I look in the mirror and I'm thinking, I could use a tan, I mean, it would be nice. I'm not just peach, I'm European peach. I'm Irish peach. If I was a DJ, I'd be DJ Irish cream, amen? (laughs) Some of y'all look like y'all can use a laugh. Little red, yeah, little red. My wife told me if I grew this beard out any further, I was going to look like the Lucky Charms dude. They're magically delicious. Okay. My point being is this, that's not my identity, it's, it's my skin color. And I understand it's connected to a culture. I get it. And I understand what that culture is projected, I get it. But I'm going to ask you in the name of Jesus, please consider me your brother if you're saved. And please believe that I'm bigger than my, my skin color. I'm more than my skin color. I'm more than the culture it represents. I didn't get a vote in it. It's the same way with people that have darker skin. They didn't get a vote. We shouldn't be proud of it. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We should operate in the reality of it to the degree that we have to, but we should rise above it. Because that's what Jesus does. He says, I have abolished the enmity. I've taken down the barriers. I've eradicated those things. And when you come to me, you all become one new person. That's not just a kumbaya, Michael, row your boat ashore kind of moment. It's reality, it's theology. And so we're either pressing into that in our relationships or we're getting our cues from the media, we're getting our cues from social media, we're getting our cues from all of the groups that want you to join their group based on the culture that they identify you with. And again, that's the enemy, that's Satan. You have to go radical on your heart with this stuff. Unity and reconciliation are commanded in Scripture. It's not an option. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. If your brother has anything against you, you go to him. His words were this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming to worship, but you remember there that your brother has something against you, don't worship right then. Leave your gift at the altar First, says the Son of God. First, you go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know how much fake worship goes up on Sundays in the South? Do you know that? We got our favorite song on now. We're lifting up, we're... And we harbor supremacist thoughts, superior thoughts, bitterness, anger, because we're not right with each other. There may be a degree that I could take this, and I'll leave it with you to decide if you can say amen to it. Maybe the Lord looks at that and he says, I know you think you're worshiping me, but I can't receive that to the degree that you're offering it. I can't, I can't receive that to the degree that you're offering it because I see what you refuse to see. So if you want to unpack that even further, what, what if we take entire segments of the church where, where ju- we're just turning a blind eye? You know, what one race at the mountain is about is one of the visuals is going to be when you look around and you show up that day. And you need to come, by the way, unless you are providentially hindered. you just need to be there. You just need to be there. And, and you just need to look around and what you're going to see is thousands and thousands of people who Jesus says you're all one together. And what are we doing? We're humbling ourselves to press into the oneness that the culture is trying to prevent us from entering into. Yeah. And we're literally doing it in the sight of the enemy who, who threw down a strong marker in that very top of that very mountain. He threw down a marker when he burned that cross in 1915 through a representative of the church on Stone Mountain. And we're going up there and we're saying, that far, no more, not again. We're raising a fist of defiance for the glory of Jesus against the principalities and powers that seek to keep our community in bondage. And we're the only ones that have authority to go up there and do that the only ones so we're not strutting up there we're not going up there with swag we're going up there knowing that the glory of God in our generation in this city is tethered to somewhat the manifestation of that glory is tethered to what are we going to do about this we're going to go and be reconciled to our brother and then we'll worship We're also called to be unified in thought and purpose. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Listen to Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Throw up Romans 15 for me, please. Romans 15, 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement, I think that's fitting for this kind of work, May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the Lord and uh, the the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, here's here's the line of action He prays and then He assigns something to us. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know how Jesus welcomed me on that summer day in 1994? He welcomed me with my struggles my baggage, my ignorance. He welcomed me with, with my history. He welcomed me in the spite of I knew almost nothing about the kingdom. He, he welcomed me with open arms, fully, freely, lavishly, and lovingly, welcomed me and made me a son in full standing the moment I said, I trust you and I need you. And now we're called to do the same thing. So when we, when we are approaching our relationship, it's not, um, let mm, let me, let me Make sure I can get into this thing and still keep myself safe. Let me make sure I don't risk anything. Let me make sure it doesn't cost me too much. Let me make sure I'm not uncomfortable. Let me make sure as I, as I reach out to people of another culture, let me make sure I don't do it in a way that they think I'm affirming all the historical wrongdoing that's been between our two cultures. You see, we play it safe sometimes. So we give ourselves incrementally in ways that we can all, always pull ourselves back if there's any further risk of hurt. That's not how Christ welcomed us. And so we're literally called to lay it all on the line and to risk it in a way. You see, we're not pretending that we don't open ourselves up to further hurts. What kind of relationship has any validity and substance to it apart from the element of risk? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So Jesus welcomes us and he says through Paul, go welcome each other. This morning, I'm almost done. I mean, I'm telling you, I was so burdened. I wasn't afraid. I was burdened. I felt it, man. I feel it right now. There's just a, a different, there's help right now. I didn't feel like I had the help this morning. God had to bend me, bring me to a place of brokenness because you, you can't preach this stuff academically. It's a hollow sounding instrument when it's just facts and spreadsheets. When I look out, man, I'm I'm looking at younger and older and male and female, American and international, white, brown, black, and I know some of your stories and the pains that you've had on this issue of being mistreated because of your culture and your skin color. And I I just can't be, I just can't, I can't skip past that, man. I can't just, uh, you know, give a token nod to it and say, yeah, it's too bad. You know, got to press on, you know, just kind of flip it. So I I, I said, Lord, this morning I'm going to call the church to repentance and I don't even really know specifically. Uh, where to throw down an anchor. General repentance, yeah. But I just sat there. I don't know how long I sat there. I was just quiet in my office and said, Lord, speak to me. And in the midst of those moments, he said, I want you to call white Christians to repent of their blindness. And I want you to call black Christians to repent of their bitterness. because I think they're both in play. Yeah, they are. It doesn't mean blacks can't be blind and whites can't be bitter, but I think if you go to the polar extremes, I, th- I think that's what we've got to, we've got to face that monster. I feel much more bold when I'm speaking to white people about uh, where the errors lie on our side. But again, I asked you, everybody in the room, don't look at me as a white guy today. And so when when I say that I heard the Lord say that black Christians need to pr- repent of bitterness, um, it's not coming from a, a white guy who's dismissing your pain. It's not coming in a way that says, yeah, everything's good now. There was a shift in the 70s, and after all, we had a, a black president, so it's time to Buck up. I don't think the problem's gone at all. Why? We can pass as many laws as we want. This is a heart issue. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Lord, help now. I don't, I don't uh, have any illusions. I, I cannot fix the cultural hostility in America. I know that. You can't either. But I'm going to tell you something. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream wasn't a fantasy. It's only a fantasy if you take the gospel out of it. It's a prophetic vision when you leave the gospel in it. I don't know when we'll see it, but I can tell you this. We will only see it when you and I repent. And stay repentant and welcome the Holy Spirit to dig down as deep as He needs to until we have repented fully. Even to the, listen, even to something as pedantic as stop telling off the cuff stereotyping jokes about other races. Stop it. Just stop. Why? Well, because every word that comes out of my mouth is either helping or hurting. stop looking at an entire culture of people and putting them under the blanket of identification based on your worst experience with a person that looked like them. I told this last week. I'll mention it here. 1984. Five black guys beat me up took the last $5 I had in my wallet as a 14-year-old and humiliated me at a baseball camp. By the grace of God, and I thank my parents, we were raised to never be ra- racial epithets were not allowed in my home. We, we didn't roll like that. I didn't become angry. I became very afraid of black men. And At age 19, God put me in a department at Primerical Financial Services working shoulder to shoulder with two black guys Ben and Fred. And I became such good friends with them. And I had a choice to make. I can either view an entire demographic of people based on five guys that did me harm or two guys that I really, really liked. See, all it takes is one exception to ruin our stereotypes. Ultimately, I think what we need to do is humble ourselves, speak less, listen more, and start having conversations. Friends, I want to tell you this. One of these days, I'm going to be a granddad, and Grandma's sitting right here in the front row. I, I want my grandkids to scratch their head when I'm 85 and say, you mean to tell me America was really like that back then? Grandpa, I don't... I can't believe that. We can do this. We can do it. Would you stand to your feet?